Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Today's reading is from Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. I'm really excited by where we've been in worship because I I have this feeling that God wants to do something in our midst this morning. God's already been at work. Um, But the sense that I had coming in was that God wanted to show his glory among us, and his glory is his love. And so as Joe was speaking to us about this idea that we have a great high priest who makes a way for us, I think that really lands in this letter, this idea of an open door, we'll get to in a minute. And I want to to encourage and maybe challenge you this morning. There's this line in the Psalms, when can I go and meet with God? When can I go and meet with God? And that came back to me really prominently as Joe was talking about Jesus making a way for us. And I just have this sense that Jesus is making a way and opening a door, and it's a door that no one can shut. And there's this invitation to you and to me to come into the presence of God and to encounter the glory of God, to encounter the love of God in a richer, deeper way than we have before. And I think, I wonder if this is the kind of thing that comes as an answer to hunger. I think Rachel Hughes maybe said something about this at our weekend away, that purity, purity is a, a response to hunger. And it led me towards this prayer from Augustine, Lord, You've put salt on our lips that we may thirst for you. I wonder if as as I begin this morning, would you pray that prayer with me? You might like to close your eyes, whatever helps you to concentrate. You might like to open your hands as a sign of, 
a willingness to be open in your body. You might not have come hungry, but maybe you can pray this prayer as if saying the words will help you know how. So Lord, I come to you. We come to you. Lord, would you put salt on our lips that we may thirst for you? God, would you, would you take the flickering flame of my desire for you and not snuff it out, but pour fuel on it? God, would you take the bruised reed of my attempt to follow you and not break it, but strengthen it and pour life into it? Would you graft me in to your living vine? Holy Spirit, would you come and pour out the very life of God in our midst? Would you rise up like a spring of living water within each one this morning? God, we hunger and thirst for you. My heart and my flesh cry out for you, the living God. When can I go and meet with God? God, I pray that that moment would be now. Would you come and speak to us this morning? Would you come and show us your glory? Would you come and show us your love? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I think there's something of this sense of both God's glory and his love in the letter to the Philadelphians. Um, Why? Why do I think that? Well, the letter to the Philadelphians that we've heard read this morning is the second longest of the seven letters to the church, and it's the second to last letter. It is the sixth letter. And like the second letter, which is the one to Smyrna, to the Smyrnans, it is completely positive and doesn't contain a rebuke. In case you hadn't already noticed, Revelation likes its patterns. The second letter, the second to last letter, there's going to be a lot more kind of significance with numbers and patterns and images as we go. But also in this letter, another reason that I think there's a sense of God's glory and his love coming together, Jesus' love for this church gets a prominent mention. And actually, this is the first letter of any of the seven in which Jesus speaks about him loving the church rather than the church's love for him, like in Ephesians, where he challenges them to return to his first love. And it's actually the only letter that speaks about Jesus' unconditioned love for his church, Jesus' agape love for his church. There's this prominent love theme in this letter. And more than that, the dominant image in the letter, as we've already started to speak about, is this picture of Jesus opening a door for this church that no one can shut. No one can shut. There's a powerful sense of God's welcome in this letter. There's a powerful sense of God's love in this letter. The image of Jesus standing at the door and knocking from the final letter to the Laodiceans is a more famous feature of the letters in Revelation, perhaps because of the famous painting by the painter whose name currently escapes me, should have written it down. That's more famous 
But this is what we have in this letter. Jesus holding open a door for them. You see, I think this letter has something to say to us about the love of a heavenly father who holds, who through Jesus holds open a door for you and for me. I think this letter is about grace. There's this sense of God's love that runs through it, but it starts with holiness. God's glory is his love. God's glory, God's glory is his love. These are the things I want to bring together for you this morning. It's not often the way that I think about it, but this letter, it's about love, and it starts with holiness. What's the first line of the message after Jesus has announced who he's writing to, after he said this is the letter to Philadelphia? It reads like this. These are the words of him who is holy and true. Him who is holy and true. That's what we read in the NIV. But a better translation here might actually be not to take holy and true as adjectives, him who is holy and true, but to take them as titles. Because that's the way that the structure is in the Greek. Let me tell you what that might sound like. It would sound something more like this. These are the words of the Holy One. The true one. Can you hear a little bit of the authoritarian difference there between those two? This one is the holy one. When you think holiness, this is the holy one. Why does this matter? Why highlight this to you? Is this just nitpicking about Greek because, you know, to show off that I I know these things? Yes, it is. Who's talking here? Who's talking in the letter? It's Jesus. When Jesus starts speaking and he says, these are the words of the Holy One, that becomes a claim that Jesus deserves that title. These words that belong to the Holy One, to the True One, they're Jesus's words. And this matters because in the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Isaiah, that's going to become relevant in a minute, The Holy One of Israel is Yahweh. The Holy One of Israel is the God whose holiness is so complete that you couldn't possibly make an image of this God. The Holy One of Israel is the God who is so holy that you cannot even say this God's name. The Holy One of Israel is a title that belongs to Israel's God in the Old Testament. And there's not just an Old Testament echo here because holy and true is a phrase that John goes on to use to describe the Father in Revelation 6 verse 10. The point is this, Jesus, this man that some of the people in the earliest Christian community knew, this man on whose chest at least one of them has lain back at a meal, this person who broke bread with you, this person whose body you saw naked and broken and beaten on the cross, this person, he's God. He's the Holy One. That's a real shock. That's a real real shock. Because Jesus isn't what most people reading the Old Testament when John was writing expected the Holy One of Israel to look like. In fact, 
the idea that Jesus is the Holy One, not just holy, but the Holy One, is such a provocative thing for the first followers of Jesus to say that their friends and their neighbors, their fellow members of an oppressed religious minority, shunned them and shut the door on them. Why? Because these people had reimagined holiness in light of Jesus. Because these people had a different understanding of what was holy because of what they saw in Jesus. You know, I think it's fair to say that the letter to the Philadelphians suggests that the Christ followers had a bit of a tense relationship with the Jewish community in that city. Synagogue of Satan, anyone? But what's happened in that synagogue is constantly in danger of happening, I think, in the church. You see, what's happened here is that these Christ followers have reimagined holiness in light of Jesus, and it's turned their priorities upside down. And what is for them? The religious establishment does not like it. Now, you and me, we don't live in Philadelphia, the one which was an ancient city, which is now in modern Turkey, rather than the one in America, but you don't live in that one either at the moment. You live in England. The religious establishment here isn't the synagogue. It's the church, and particularly perhaps, provocatively, the Church of England. The starkness of the challenge in this letter doesn't go away. You and me, we're called to reimagine holiness in light of Jesus by a letter which is addressed to anyone with ears. Anyone got ears? Anyone hearing? Whoever's got ears, whoever's got ears should hear this. This challenge hasn't gone away. The challenge of Jesus being the holy one, the true one, being this bright, burning flame of holiness doesn't go away just because you're in a church. Whoever has ears this morning, you have to reimagine holiness in light of Jesus. We have to look Oh gosh, we have to look, friends, we have to look into the face of Jesus and see there the love of the Father poured out and know that that's what holiness looks like. How does the letter to the Philadelphians start to do that? Well, I think one of the most shocking things about Jesus in this letter is what he does with his holiness. So the letter begins with this claim that Jesus is the holy one, the true one. But the next statement in the letter is that the one who is this holy one, this true one, holds the key of David and he alone opens and shuts. He alone has authority to open and shut. And all this language that that Jesus is using when he's dictating this letter Um, to an angel that John's writing down. There's lots of characters going on here. Um, All this language belongs in, comes out of Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 23. And that passage reads like this. 
In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder, thinking government on Jesus' shoulders here, the key to the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. Echoes? And what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg, think about a tent, into a firm place. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. Now I know what you're thinking. Good old Eliakim. One of my favorite Bible characters, that one. I know all about him. (laughs) We're not going to spend a long time with Eliakim. But what I want you to notice here is the key of David and the language of opening and shutting. There are echoes of that on purpose in the letter to the Philadelphians. There's this sense in the letter to the Philadelphians, that Eliakim was an echo of Jesus before Jesus was born. What theologians, when they're using language in ways that you're not quite used to, might call a type of Christ. Not a kind of Jesus 2.0 or, or like before Jesus or anything like this. Someone whose life echoes some of the features of what we're going to see in Jesus is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. They echo it in advance, a type of Christ. But there's a big difference in the way that they use this key. In Isaiah's promise, Eliakim is God's way of firming up the people of Israel, like a tent peg driven into a firm place. Eliakim is going to keep the people of Israel holy and preserve their boundaries and pour out God's benefits to the insiders so that they can flourish. It's a great promise to have. But Jesus, Jesus is redefining holiness and Jesus is about something very different. Jesus is going to open up the doors and let the music play and let the streets resound with singing and invite everyone in to God's party. Invite you and me who could never earn a place into this holy party, into the wedding banquet to which the whole of Revelation is pointing towards, in which there's celebration and dancing because God is going to be with his people and there won't be distance and there won't be separation anymore. That's how Jesus is using his holiness. Jesus is using his holiness to open up the love of God. Because God's glory, God's glory is towards his people and his glory is his love. Jesus uses his key to place before this church of little strength, before the mongrel mix of shunned Gentiles and Jews, before you and me today, an open door that no one can shut into the very presence of God. My heart and my flesh cry out, when can I go and meet with God? Now. Why? Because Jesus uses his holiness in this way. This is what it means for God to be holy. This is what it means for God to be the holy one, to be the true 
one. Because Jesus, Jesus is where you see God. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus. This is a complete reversal of expectations. If you're going to know this holy one, we're going to have to reimagine holiness. Specifically, we're going to have to reimagine holiness with Jesus holding the door open. As Chuck de Groot puts it, not the goat. You and I need to reimagine holiness, not through the lens of perfectionism, but through the lens of our utter oneness with God. You and I need to reimagine holiness with Jesus holding the door open. You and I need to reimagine holiness actually trusting that God's Father heart is towards you. And that he loves you and that he will brook no separation from you. It's different language, but it's the message of the father heart from the story of the prodigal son here. It's different language, but it's the promise of Romans 8 that nothing can separate you from the love of God. It is grace. Grace runs through this letter. But I think it's it's kind of interesting that the letter to the church in Philadelphia has this tone, this open door, the fact that there's no rebuke in it. No, you've abandoned your first love. No, I'm going to spit you out. Come next week, stick for six. That'll be the message. It's actually maybe even weird. It's maybe even weird that the church in Philadelphia gets this Message. I mean, think back to what Amy told us about Ephesus. That church was thriving. That church had excellent ministries. That church, that church, that church made no one unhappy. That church was apparently thriving. But Jesus points to them and says, you've abandoned, you've abandoned your first love. What does he say about the church in Philadelphia? I know that you have little strength. Jesus goes the whole way through the Gospels going, oh, you of little faith to the disciples. He comes to the church in Philadelphia and he's like, I know that you've got little strength. This church is not necessarily thriving. This, this church... This church doesn't appear to be thriving. Apparently, it's not thriving. And even the place where it lives, even the city itself, is precarious. As Ian Paul notes in his commentary, physically, Philadelphia sat on the fault line that was the cause of the devastating earthquake of AD 17. Where Philadelphia was is now the modern city of al no idea if that's good pronunciation, in Turkey, and with the devastation of the recent earthquake in Turkey living large in the memory at the moment, it's not hard to imagine how it might feel to live in a city on a fault line. The rich volcanic soil made them wealthy as a farming community until Domitian decided that everyone had to stop farming grapes and farm grain to feed his soldiers, at which point he devastated their economy as well. But this rich volcanic soil also made them insecure. 
We know from archaeological evidence that the city was devastated by earthquakes in AD 17 and in AD 60, twice in 43 years. Every community will have lost loved ones and seen people lose homes or livelihoods in those events. There's going to be scar tissue in the cultural psyche in this place. And this this is why it's so significant for Jesus to promise that the one who overcomes will be a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. What's Jesus doing? He's using his holiness to open a door into the very presence of God and telling people used to having the rug pulled out from under them that they'll be safe there. This is where you get to live. It's different language, but it's the message of the Father heart. It's different language, but it's the promise of Romans 8. It's God's undertone that runs throughout the whole of Scripture, speaking grace and saying, you, you are my beloved. You are my beloved. I know, I know what it looks like around you. I know that you live in the midst of earthquakes. I know that you're used to things being flattened. I know that you're used to things falling apart. But that's not inevitable. What's inevitable is that you are my beloved one. Jesus is redefining holiness away from perfection. Away from you needing to know what God thinks and find your way to meticulously live that out. Away from a church full of strength and strategy and success and the graph going up and to the right. Away from a life marked by the prosperity that inevitably follows God's apparent blessing. It's undercutting any idea of a prosperity gospel. Jesus redefines holiness as being in the presence of God through trial and tribulation, and he promises that to this community. For this precarious church, holiness is being with the Holy One. So how, how do you and me, how do you and me do this? How do we Listen to the letter to the Philadelphians with ears to hear. I think, I think the letter gives you two options, depending on where you're at. Specifically, whether you come in weak or whether you come in strong. And either, either, is, either is fine. You can be anywhere. But if you're strong then redefining holiness in light of Jesus might be a challenge for you precisely because of that strength. Because this path looks like repentance. Think with me, if you will, about the synagogue of Satan. And maybe even the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. See, the Jewish religion has survived as an outsider identity, often in hostile environments for thousands of years. Why? Precisely because it is so good at forming people across generations. Do you know what that means? 
It means that it's not necessarily a massive surprise that it's difficult for them to reimagine holiness around Jesus. They have been committed to the Holy One of Israel in incredibly difficult circumstances for hundreds of years. But you and me can be like that too. Because Jesus says things, at least for me, that make me deeply uncomfortable. And if he hasn't said anything like that to you recently, then it's time to read a gospel again. Because Jesus says things that make you uncomfortable. And he asks for your full allegiance. There is no area of your life that he's willing to leave under your control because he loves you far too much for that. Because living that way will keep you on the wrong side of a door that he has opened for you and that no one can shut. Those promises from Isaiah that have been reversed, they're promises that everyone gets invited into the kingdom. It's just that Jesus is saving that synagogue in a way that is totally different than they thought that he would. How is he saving them? What's the prescription for this ill? You see his love at work and you repent. Listen to this. I will make them, the synagogue of Satan, come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Falling down at the feet of those God loves is not a moment of humiliation. It's a moment of repentance. See, God doesn't change. He's not a man that he should change his mind. He's not a mortal. The promise from Isaiah was that everyone was going to be saved and that Israel had a key role in that. It's just that they didn't realize that their role was going to be seeing Jesus fling wide the door and having to repent when they saw God's grace at work in the places where it really shouldn't be. So if you came in feeling strong, if you came in feeling like you know who God is and you know how God works and you have, this, you have this good grasp on God, I've got news for you this morning. His grace reaches way further, way further than you've ever conceived. And it's so good that it's time for you to repent of the smallness of your vision. It's time for you to let Jesus redefine holiness for you. It's time to repent. What about the weak? This path, I think, looks like surrender. You've got two options repent or surrender. Enjoy. But listen to what Jesus praises in the church at Philadelphia in verse 10. He says this, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world. Now, again, it's going to get slightly technical. A better translation of this phrase, my command to endure patiently, might might read something like, Since you have kept the word of my endurance... The word 
of my endurance. Again, you might be able to hear a slightly different sense in that already, but let me explain to you why I think this is important. The reason that I think this is a better translation is that it keeps your interpretive options more open in line with the Greek. You see, the word of Jesus' endurance doesn't actually have to be his command that you grip on. It could also be the story of what Jesus endured for you, out of his deep love for you. And it could even be both. It could mean the story of Jesus' passionate pursuit of you that you are called to hold on to with passionate patience, as the message puts it. Why might holding on to the story of Jesus' sacrifice for me be difficult? Why might it be difficult for the church in Philadelphia? Sorry. Because they've got little strength. Because you've got little strength. Because you're weak. And it's hard to believe that you're that valuable to God. Especially when he promises you an open door into the presence of God while you go through trial. Henry Nowant puts it this way. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. What have you heard? What have you heard that has contradicted that in you? What lie have you listened to? What has sapped your little strength? What, has, what voice have you heard that has told you you're not beloved? Because it's a lie. So Jesus, as Jesus, in your authority, we speak to those lies in, the, in your name. And we break their power. And I declare over your little ones, your weak ones in this place, that they are the beloved, that they are deeply loved by you. That you endured so much for them that they can hold on to that promise that you endured. Your blood speaks a better word for us, Lord. It, I mean, it really does. Jesus redefines holiness away from perfection towards your utter oneness with God. What does he do? He writes a new name on you. He writes beloved on you. He writes the name of his God and the name of the city of his God and his own new name. He doesn't leave you to, his, to your own devices. He writes his own new name on you. He also writes his own name. It's on them, my new name. Do you know what this name is in the context of the book of Revelation? This is the name that's written on Jesus' thigh. 
right? This is not far removed from him. And this is not some arcane secret that we could necessarily work out or whatever. This is who Jesus is in his inmost holiness. And he writes it on you. He shares that with you. He holds open a door for you. It's about grace. This letter is about grace. He redefines holiness away from perfection towards presence in love. Jesus, Jesus is not impatient for your improvement. He's jealous for your attention because he wants to call you the beloved and he wants you to hear it and he wants you to surrender to it. If you came in feeling weak, feeling like you could not and never would be able to do what God's asking of you, I've got news for you. His grace reaches way further than you've ever conceived. And it's so good that it's time for you to surrender to it and to fully trust his declaration that you are the beloved. It's time for you to let Jesus redefine holiness for you. The letter to the Philadelphians gives us two patterns to respond to the way Jesus redefines holiness. Repentance and surrender. But however you have come in this morning, whether or not either of those resonates for you, it's God's love that draws you into this holiness. It's Jesus himself that opens the door into God's presence. So before we come to the table... I want to invite you to respond to that love. That love that declares that you are beloved. That you are the apple of his eye. That he delights in you. That his, that his favor rests on you. That, that it breaks his heart when you can't believe that. Because he loves you that way. I want to invite you... Um, why don't we stand together? If you're willing and able. I want to invite you to repent and I want to invite you to surrender. And you don't necessarily need me to do this. You can take this home and do it yourself. But there is a moment here because I am utterly convinced that God wants to invite us into his glory, wants to bestow his glory upon his church. And his glory is his love. And there's something in that this morning. So I want to invite you to, you know what, you know what is important for you to do with Jesus now. But imagine that he is in the room and that he is looking at you. And I want to invite you to repent if you have come in thinking that you know who Jesus is because he's so much greater and so much more glorious and his vision and his love goes far beyond the bounds of what you've yet conceived. And I want to invite you to surrender. You might like to stand. You might like to open your hands. You might like to kneel. 
We're going to spend a minute in the presence of Jesus, the Holy One, before we come to his table.